Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ted. Good morning, Church on Mill. Great to see all of you. Excited to open the scriptures with you. Before we get into Daniel and uh, those who've got kids and you want them to go, before you head out, uh, just a couple things that are upcoming. Um, we'll mention this in the announcements at the end, but underneath your uh, bottom is, are some cards, if you didn't notice. In two weeks, we are going to start the book of Colossians. So if uh, you want to start reading ahead and invite somebody, you could use those cards for that. And then uh, additionally, um, as we are looking ahead to the fall, uh, it appears that COVID numbers are staying relatively low, and uh, we are anticipating, Lord willing, uh, barring some unforeseen circumstance, that uh, this coming fall, we will be able to resume all the normal ministries on Sunday morning. And so that is something to feel very excited about and anticipate. Thanks for the help, Morgan. Morgan is happy about that. I'm not sure about the rest of you. Um, but we will uh, then be able to have connection classes here uh, instead of on Zoom. We'll um, have all the kids' ministries up and running. Uh, we'll go back to the uh, food between gatherings. So we're just anticipating that to be really uh, wonderful. And um, as we normally do in May to prepare for the upcoming uh, fall, we uh, spend the month of May letting you know about the opportunities to serve that will be present in order to help make all that happen. It takes um, well over 100 people to pull off uh, Sunday mornings when everything's up and going. So start thinking and praying about where you can serve. And uh, next week, we'll give you some more details on that. If there's any kids that uh, want to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now, and the rest of us, we will be in Daniel chapter 12. So if you'll turn with me there to uh, Daniel 12, and if you don't have a Bible underneath the seats in front of you, you should be able to find one that would uh, give you the text we'll be in today. If you're new with us, my name's Chuck, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy today to finish out a book we've been studying the last three months called Daniel. It is uh, one of the a few books in the Bible that speak uh, directly in terms of it, the kind of literature it is about what will happen at the end of time as we know it. Uh, Zach, who played the piano, is going to come read for us today, verses 5 to 13. He got a haircut. Why don't you give him applause for looking good today? I was wondering if you were going to say the same joke from this morning, nope. but you didn't. This morning he was like, I wonder if you can read and play piano at the same time. And Thank you. Okay, all right. Uh, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Amen. Thank you, brother. Um, on first reading... This passage at the very end of Daniel may strike us as a bit of a disappointment. There's no grand narrative, no lion's den, golden statue, or fiery furnace. Additionally, there's a complete absence of the kinds of awe-inspiring visions filled with beasts and battles that we've grown accustomed to. Instead, it's just Daniel, a couple of angels, a cryptic couple of references to time frames, and then the book concludes. Really? Like, come on. This is, is this one of those books that should have ended before it reaches its end? 
Seems like a letdown. And yet, isn't that exactly what life is like? I hope to show you this morning why this is actually the very best possible ending to this terrific book. Two times in this short passage, uh, Daniel is told, uh, go your way. That's a gentle way of saying, Daniel, you've seen heavenly visions. You understand great things that are to come. You've seen what no one else alive has seen. Now go do your laundry. Listen to your neighbor drone on and on about the weather. Pet your cat, answer your emails, say your prayers, read the scrolls, go to bed, get up and do it again. Get on with your life. It seems that after the soaring heights of narratives and visions, we need the mundane sound of the alarm clock on Monday morning to get us back going again. This is the perfect conclusion to a perfect book. Now, in these verses, let's uh, consider two things this morning. Number one, we'll look at the questions that are in the passage and consider their answers. And then after that, let's consider the command in the passage and its promise. So first, the questions. Uh, Before we study the questions raised in this paragraph, let's take a couple of moments to remember what brought us to this point, what prompted those questions in the first place. If you were here the last two weeks or perhaps watched online, listened to the podcast, this uh, section of Daniel is the conclusion of chapters 10 and 11. So 10, 11, and 12 form one long extended story. And it was provoked by a particular historical event. In the year 539 B.C., after roughly 70 years of exile, the Jews were allowed to return from Babylon to the city of Jerusalem. And many went back. They went back to rebuild the temple, to reconstitute themselves as the people of God, and to resume public worship. And for a few weeks, it looked like things were going to go really well. But then the neighbors around the city of Jerusalem provoked such problems that it was impossible to continue the rebuilding. News of that catastrophe reached Daniel, and as we saw at the beginning of chapter 10, he fasted and prayed, asking God to intervene. And in response, the Lord sent an angel with an answer, a vision, if you will, to help Daniel understand what was to come. That vision is all of chapter 11. That lengthy and complex chapter revealed that although the physical exile was over, the difficulties the people of God would face were far from it. Now, looking back on this time frame, with the benefit of both the completed Bible and lots of secular history that fill in the details, we know that for the next 500 plus years, the Jews would live in the land of Judah or Israel, and yet they would not be free. Persian rule would give way to Greek rule. Greek rule would give way to Roman rule. And during their years under the Greeks, the Jews would be caught between a battle between a group in the north in Syria and a group in the south in Egypt. And so geographically, they were stuck in the middle. And therefore, anytime these two groups fought, they faced great trial. And at the very height of that trial, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes went into Jerusalem, into the temple, outlawed their religious practices, set up an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and sacrificed pigs on the altar, making it impossible for the Jews to worship publicly again. Now, for Daniel, that was all in the future, hundreds of years in the future, actually. But for us, it's in the past. And yet, the vision Daniel heard about in chapter 11 contains some prophecies that are still in the future. We're still awaiting their fulfillment. Immediately before the end of time as we know it. So right before 
in close proximity to the return of King Jesus, the opposition against the church, we're told, will be particularly severe. And yet, if you let your eyes glance back up to the first paragraph of chapter 12, the very climax of that vision, we learned that in the end, Jesus wins. Because all God's people will experience the same resurrection that Jesus has. And we will join Him in everlasting life. Our passage today is in response to all of that. So chapter 10, 11, the first part of 12, build to this final comprehensive conclusion to the book. Now you probably noticed when the text was read a few minutes ago that there are two questions found in this passage. There's one in verse 6 and one in verse 8. The questions are not surprising. In verse 6, it says, how long will it be till the end of these wonders? So how long? And then verse 8, what shall be the outcome of these things? These are rather obvious questions to ask. They're the same kinds of questions you and I would have asked if we had been there. So that there were questions, and what those questions were shouldn't strike us as unusual. But who asked the first question? is pretty shocking. Remember the scene. Daniel is standing by the river, the Tigris River, praying. He's gone without delicate foods, the best things, in order to fast and pray. And in that time of prayer, which lasted for three weeks, God sent an angel. This angel showed up in brilliant attire. If you don't know what I'm talking about, later today, look back at chapter 10. That angel then communicated to Daniel the vision that God had for him and thereby for us. But apparently there were more angels there than had been mentioned. And one of those angels, who's now here in chapter 12, asks the angel who gave the vision, how long? How long is this going to last? Apparently, This angel overheard the vision being given to Daniel, and some of it overwhelmed him. And so difficult was the news that the angel just cried out, How long? How long will the suffering of the people of God last? How long until Jesus returns, we would say today? Well, that's the age-old question, isn't it? I mean, when we suffer we tend to ask two things. Why and how long? God, why are you letting this thing happen? And how long is it going to ask? Last. If you look across the pages of the Bible, you'll find those questions over and over and over and over and over again. But here, it's an angel asking. I find it so comforting that a heavenly being more powerful right now than all of us is asking the same question. Daniel's question in verse 8 is not dissimilar. Essentially, he asks, how will all these things end? When we suffer, and especially when we suffer under various forms of hardship because of our faith, questions are natural. I want to encourage you today in response to this, that if you're in a time of difficulty or suffering, it doesn't matter how small it is. If you're in any form of crisis, particularly crisis because you've been bold and vocal for your faith, then it's entirely appropriate to ask good questions. God can handle it. And I'll let you in on a little secret. He already knows. You're not going to surprise him with your questions. The answers given to Daniel and to the angel are found in these verses, and they will help to answer our questions as well. The angel asked how long, and then he got a very dramatic response. So dramatic, I think it's worth looking at the verse again. Look at verse 7, would you? It says this, and I heard the man, remember angels are heavenly beings, they're spirits, So they don't have bodies, but they appear here 
in the form of, a, of men in order to communicate to Daniel. So, and I heard the man or the angel clothed in linen, symbolizing his purity, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the people of the holy people come to an end, all these things would be finished. Now notice first the dramatic manner in which the answer is given. The angel, we're told, raised both hands before he talked to Daniel. Now it was customary even back then that when you made a vow or a, a commitment in which you were especially emphasizing that what you were saying is true, you would do so by raising your right hand. It's the same thing today that you do if you testify in court. Before you take the stand, you raise your right hand, repeat after me, and you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you God. That was existent even back then. There are times in our lives where we say things that are of such significance that it's only appropriate to think of it as making a vow. But notice the angel didn't just raise one hand. He also raised the other. This is a brilliant physical way of communicating the absolute certainty of what he was going to say. This is making the most important promise you've ever made in the most emphatic way possible. The angel saying, I swear what I'm going to tell you. You can count on this. Now, the answer to the question, how long, the angel with both arms up says, Daniel, it's, I mean, he says to the other angel, it's going to be a time, times, and half a time. Well, thanks a lot. This odd saying occurs just three times in the entire Bible. It occurs twice in Daniel, so we've already seen it once, and it occurs once in Revelation. All three instances occur in a type of literature called apocalyptic. Uh, the, the word apocalypse just refers to the end of time. And so apocalyptic literature is literature that's in part about the end when Christ returns. Therefore, because each one of those occurrences are, are, are grounded in apocalyptic literature, by this point, if you've been with us, hopefully you've picked up on a key interpretive principle that must be used to rightly understand this kind of writing, is we should first think, what does this represent? What is it symbolic of? What is it a picture of? Because apocalyptic writing, its main characteristic is it conveys truth through the use of symbols. Now, essentially, every scholar that I'm aware of understands this to be a reference to three and a half. So, time, one, times, two, half a time, the end. So, one plus two plus a half equals... Great job. Now, the question, of course, is three and a half what? Three and a half hours? Three and a half years? Three and a half millennia? Three and a half what? But spending a lot of time trying to figure that out turns out to be a fool's errand because that misses the point. The point we ought to be asking is, well, what does the three and a half represent? What is it a picture of? Not how long does it last? Are you with me so far? Okay. So, in the Scriptures, very, very often, numbers convey symbolic significance. This is a very different way of thinking for most of us in the cultures that we're a part of or where we're from. We don't use numbers this way. But, the number used most often in the Bible that carries the most significance is the number seven. We've talked about that several times. Seven 
represents totality or completeness. It started in the very beginning of the Bible. God created the world in six days. On the seventh, he rested. That was a complete period of time. And his creation was done in its totality. So, if we start with that number seven as the basic way of thinking about what numbers represent, which I think is the faithful way to go about this, then what's three and a half? What's half of seven? So the angel seems to be saying, don't worry about how long it will be until the end. Just know that it won't be forever. Know that the end will come. Know that the suffering you will experience is limited. Suffering, we might say, has a shelf life. But the glory after that will never expire. That's what the angel was saying. This will not go on and on and on and on. In fact, it's quite limited. It's only half of that which is complete. The angel went on to describe this time, times, and half a time as a period in which the people of God will experience a shattering of their power. Now, this is heavy and sobering. So, that's the warning label over the next couple of minutes. Beloved, what is your conception of the future of the church? I don't mean this church only, but big C, all gatherings of God's people everywhere. When you think about the future of the church, what do you think about? Do you imagine that there will be a, a gradual improvement of life for the people of God until Jesus returns? Do you picture sort of incremental progress in peace and prosperity? Do you think that the people of God will become more and more and more popular and the life will get better and better? Politically speaking, uh, seeing those in the United States on the farthest end of the far right seeing how they tend to respond to people on the farthest end of the far left. By the way, those are getting smaller and smaller. But seeing how those groups tend to respond and react to each other seems to communicate that at least some Christians need to push reset on their expectation. You see, Jesus has promised to build His church. So, the church of Jesus Christ is always going to exist. It's always going to be just fine. There's never a time in which the people of God will be in peril of being wiped out in their totality. And yet, the Bible's clear that the world will go from far from bad to worse. There is no golden age of Christian utopianism ahead nor is there one behind that we should be trying to get back to. Instead, there is this reality that the world, the flesh, and the devil will resist God and God's people until Christ returns. We Christians, you see, should not expect ease. We should regard suffering as normative and opposition as common. And we should expect that things will get more and more and more difficult. Because that is what the angel is saying. Now this does not mean, just to, this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's important given the topic. Sometimes Christians, when they hear and come to see that the scripture does not paint a picture of gradual, continual improvement. It's not what the Bible describes. Sometimes Christians wrongly think that that means, well, who cares then? I don't need to help my neighbor. I don't need to try to better the city that I live in. I don't need to try to improve people's experiences in life who don't know God. And that's not at all what I'm saying. We Christians are commanded to love God and to love people first in the church, but then more broadly 
anybody the Lord would give us opportunity to. That is our commandment and commitment regardless of how we're received. So that is the work we're to do, and yet we should do it with the expectation it's not going to get much better. May we become a people who live with sobriety because we rightly understand how to interpret what it is that we're seeing and experiencing. A pain-free, problem-free day ought to surprise us because it's not what we're promised. The passage warns, church, that for those believers who are alive right before Jesus returns, it's going to get much worse. Now, when will that be? Well, we're somewhere in the time, times, and half a time. But where? I, don't, I have no idea. Christ could delay another couple thousand years. Or he could come on Wednesday. Wouldn't you want him on Monday? When he comes, we do not know. But that he will and that things will get harder until he does, this we know. So think about that in terms of application for a moment. Uh, parents, society will press upon you that the goal in your parenting is to develop the smartest, most athletic, most brilliant and socially apt child who has ever existed. And that you will be successful in that. That your kid won't burp at the table and will look people in the eye and say, yes, please, and thank you. Now, are those good things? Sure. But sometimes parents focus so much on manners and grades that they elevate those things above what's most important. What's most important is rearing your boy or girl to come to their own decision to trust Jesus Christ and live for Him. As you are praying for and nurturing your kids, are you doing so with a vision, with a view to helping them develop a faith that can withstand being mocked, ridiculed, fired from their job, kicked out of their school because they don't conform to the pattern of the world? Are you helping them prepare to meet challenges far more difficult than you yourself have known? That, I would submit to you, ought to be the dominant goal of your parenting. Church, are you discipling the many college students among us and high schoolers among us and the challenges they face around them because they are now surrounded in a, in, in a society that is very, very different than what existed even a mere decade ago? If they believe very simple things that for the rest of human history have been regarded as normal about how people are made and what the relationship is between our bodies and our basic commitments in life, then they will be regarded as arrogant bigots. Do you realize that? And I'm not talking somewhere in the far away future. I'm talking today. Are you investing in them such that by God's grace, the time you spend with them puts rebar down their spine so they can stand up in their faith for another week? This is what the church is for. We disciple disciples so they'll grow up and mature in their faith and then repeat and do the same. Just like the bottle of shampoo says. Wash, rinse, repeat. 
The time, times, and half a time we are in will conclude only when it appears that the church has been shattered. That's a sobering idea. By God's grace, may we be a church that can withstand that opposition if it comes while we are here. And may we remain faithful to God and loving towards those who oppose us. So this is the answer to the question the angel asked. How long? Well, the answer says nothing about how long. The duration. But it says everything about what to do until, it return, until Christ returns. And tells us that even if we would be like Daniel, that is, even if we as teenagers get snatched away, taken by, by way of slavery to a distant land, and live until we're 90 and then die, that our faith will be strong enough to endure. Because it's only a limited amount of time. It's just a time, time, and half a time. That's the answer to the first question. Now, Daniel asked, well, before we look at what he asked, notice Daniel's response to that first question. It's in verse 8. Daniel says, to the angel with both hands in the sky, saying time, times, and half a time, uh, I heard, but I did not understand. And all God's people say. <laughs> How wonderful is that? Daniel didn't quite grasp it all. Daniel then asked a question of his own, essentially seeking greater clarity, to which the angel gave an additional answer. You'll find it in verses uh, 11 and 12. Daniel responded that that period of time would be 1,290 days and another 1,335 days. Now, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just too weird. Daniel says, I don't understand. And the angel says, well, Daniel, it's going to be 1,290 days and 1,335 days. But those aren't literal days. We are way, way, way past 1,290 days since the angel said that. So we're left then asking, what do these represent? What does this mean? Perhaps the most recent and substantial book on that topic that I could find gives this answer. No one knows. There's the quote. The point here, brothers and sisters, seems to be that God in a rather enigmatic way is telling us there's some other texts that talk about 1260 and that corresponds to the seven that we saw earlier and then it comes up several times in Revelation. So that number we're somewhat familiar with, and we can figure out what it means. But that number isn't this number. This, these two numbers occur only here in the whole Bible. And it's that number that we know and familiar with and we understand, plus 30 days. So a bonus month, plus another 45 days. And what that 30 and 45 mean, as far as I can tell, no one of any denominational background in any time period that I have access to seems to have a good answer for. I simply don't know what exactly it's symbolically portraying. Therefore, I'm left thinking that's probably the point. It's probably not telling us, get your calendar out, and solve this bad boy. But instead, nobody knows. It's, it's an enigmatic way of saying, when Christ will return is a mystery. No one can figure that out. God has fixed the period of time in which his people will face opposition, but that opposition is not beyond his sovereignty, nor outside 
his plan. God oversees the duration of the suffering of the people of God, and he will bring it to a definite end. That's God's answer to our how long questions. Persecutions will not last one day beyond what God has foreordained. The future is fixed. The finale is secure. The end is certain. We just don't know when that is. And friends, although that may bug us, can't you see how it's helpful? Let's say, for example, you faced a particular trial. Let's say you got um, a serious form of cancer, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer. And you would live from that point on for the rest of your life in great pain and suffering. It would not benefit you at all to know if that would last nine years or 90 days. That would, in fact, be very counterproductive to actually living healthy spiritually and emotionally while you suffered physically. Our question, how long, doesn't actually help us. This is why the answer, perhaps, isn't given in the form that we would want it to. The answer to the question, how long, is actually, trust me, be faithful. There's a future settled and secure, and you won't know when it is. Church, when you suffer, I pray that you would keep these truths close to your heart. The sovereignty of our good God is the solution to enduring hardship well. And knowing it will end, although we don't know when, is designed by God to instill confidence and sustain hope. It is, in fact, what we do when we get together every Sunday. That's what made those weeks when we couldn't gather so hard. It was because we didn't have the physical reminder every week starting a new week by being with the people of God, having a new batch of concrete poured into our soul that we'd be strengthened and steady and strong for the coming week. You see, we need reminders every seven. This is the design of God. So that's the first half, essentially, of this last section in the book of Daniel. Consider with me, though, not only the answers and the questions, but the command and the promise. Twice Daniel is told in no uncertain terms, Daniel, go your way. Beyond writing down the vision so that the faithful people of God would be faithful and endure till the end. That was Daniel's task. That was why we have the book of Daniel. Beyond that, what was Daniel to do with what he had seen and heard? Well, he wasn't to keep standing by the Tigris River, fasting and praying, for the rest of his days. In other words, he wasn't, we might say, he wasn't to become a monk and join a monastery and do nothing of temporal good. No, instead he was to go his way. Get on with your life, Daniel. Press on until the end. Friends, in these last days, this passage is telling us there's going to be two kinds of people. There's going to be uh, wicked or unrighteous people, people who don't know God. And we would expect the passage to say also there will be righteous people, good people, people who know their God. That's the, the picture so often given to us in Scripture. There are righteous people and there are unrighteous people. And yet, if you pay attention to the detail with me here, that's not what this passage says. Instead of contrasting the wicked or the righteous or the unrighteous with the righteous, this one instead says there's going to be wicked people and what kind of people? Wise. Now, why is that? Well, God's calling us, just like He's called every generation of believers, to be wise. 
Now, who are the wise? Or what are they marked by? The wise are those who understand. That's what this text says. But Daniel just said, I don't understand. And so what is this getting at? Well, what Daniel didn't understand yet is what the numbers represented. But what Daniel did understand is that however long the suffering lasts, the expectation that God has for me is that until I die or God returns, I will keep walking with him step by step by step. That's wisdom. That's what wise people do. The wise are those who understand that until Jesus returns, things may get bad and the worse, but we still got to get up, put our pants on, shorts, dress, whatever, and live the day for the Lord. Those are, there are those who live today in light of eternity, and there are those who are unwise and therefore wicked, unrighteous, who don't live today in light of eternity. The wise are those who understand how to live for God and endure daily pressure. Perhaps we could put it this way. The wise in this text, Daniel is saying, are those whose faith has street smarts. They understand what's required to stick with God and God's people when the going gets. You see, beloved, there's a constant command flowing through biblical eschatology. The doctrines of the end of time compel a particular response. And it's not what we might expect. This writing with all its symbolism and its um, difficulty is not designed to leave us standing by the Tigris River, endlessly praying and not engaged in the world. Instead, it's designed to do the exact opposite. After God sort of pulled back the curtain of time and allowed Daniel to look inside, he didn't tell Daniel, Daniel, quit your job in the Babylonian or Persian government. Daniel, go live in the desert alone so you won't be around any ungodly people and just live a holy personal life until I return. Daniel, run so you don't face any persecution. He didn't tell him, go picket City Hall and cancel every non-Christian. He simply said, Daniel, go your way. One scholar explained it this way. In the light of Daniel's preview, he's been given by God of his future purposes. His primary task was now to live for God's glory. To keep going to get up and do it again. Church on Mill, our responsibility in light of the sure future of the return of Jesus Christ is to faithfully press on as we continue to live in exile as long as it takes, regardless of how hard it is. In many ways, to live the Christian life is to simply do the next right thing in God's strength and for God's glory. And That is much more difficult than you might think, isn't it? That's why we need each other. The relationships that we've covenanted together as a church family are to help each other reach that day so that we can all hear by God's grace, well done. Overwhelming and awe-inspiring visions of the future are meant to ground us in the mundane duties of today. And so go your way is not a glib, do whatever you want. You're in charge of your own life. It's a way of saying, knowing what will happen in the end. Do the next right thing. And Daniel provides us with such a wonderful example. Because as a young teenager, he was snatched from his house, taken by force, carted hundreds of miles away, in which he would live the rest of his days primarily among people who did not share his values or love his God. 
And yet he did so in such a way that he kept the faith. He went his way. The way God gave him was not easy. It was not the way Daniel would have chosen. And yet the Lord saw fit that he would remain faithful. The question this text then begs of us is, Christian, will you? Will you go your way in God's glory or not? Now, there's a particular response to this question that undergirds the command. It's a promise. The promise was given to Daniel directly, but by implication and in other texts very clearly by application, it is given to us as well. And this promise stings because between the command, go your way, and the promise, I'll show you in a minute, lies a valley of pain, a guaranteed difficulty for all of us. That makes this hard to think about and yet very important. The pain I'm referencing is a phrase found in verse 13. It says, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now, when you hear the word rest, what do you think of? My, my guess is you think of uh, sitting watching a show you enjoy or going uh, somewhere on a vacation where you can not do much at all for a week or two or what you are trying very hard not to do right now. Take a nap. All right? That's what we think of when we hear the word rest. But rest, in this case, is a euphemism for death. The, the angel, on behalf of God, is telling Daniel, Daniel, you get up and do the next right thing, and you keep doing that over and over and over, and before we reach the end of these visions I'm giving you, this grand future of which everyone longs for, you're going to die. God, you see, not Daniel, is in charge. The, the, the center around which everything in life orbits is not Daniel. It's God. And God's in charge. Go your way, Daniel. One day you will die. That's the pain. That's the valley of hardship. We absolutely stink at this. We've done everything we can do to stuff old people off where we won't see them. And then to not talk about death. But friend, you, you ain't going to win that one. Death will come knocking on every single door. We just don't know when. So there's this command to go our way, to live each day in light of the end, to respond to God's certain return. And there's a promise I'm going to tell you in a second, but between the two is, the, is a, a guarantee your life and the church is not going to get progressively easier and better and smoother. You're not going to reach a day in which there's no potholes. You're still going to have a whole bunch of flats. But the text ends by telling us that you will stand in your allotted place at the end of days. What does that mean? Well, the picture behind stand is you will die. You will, Daniel, you're going to be put in the ground and rot. But one day you will stand again. Meaning you will be resurrected. This is the promise of resurrection. It's what was discussed in verses 1 to 4. Those who know their God and now lie in the grave will one day stand in the resurrection. Though the people of God will face terrible persecution, 
God promises everlasting life to his persevering people. And as we've seen in every single chapter of Daniel, kings and kingdoms come and go, but God is above all. God reigns supreme. God's kingdom is unending, and God has the power to bring about resurrection. The New Testament does a great job of giving us more information about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. It's another gentle way of saying you're going to rot. That you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Can you hear Daniel with his arm up, uh, Paul with his arm up? making a promise that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these Friend, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your certain future. Literally, the only thing we don't know is when that will happen. But that is rather inconsequential because we know what to do between now and then. We are to go our own way, knowing that we will die, that one day we will rise again at the end of days. And friend, if you don't yet know Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you this morning to consider that this is the future that you could have. A future in which you can reside with a people in God's place without any pain forever. That is a gift God gives through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not a blessing you can earn by changing what you do. This is what makes the gospel good news. And it is what makes Christianity utterly unique among all the religions of the world. Christianity is not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you in Christ. If you don't yet know this Jesus, I encourage you in just a moment, about three minutes from now, we're going to end. And you can reach over and tap the shoulder of the person sitting next to you and say to them, do you know that Jesus? Would you tell me more? I'm very confident they would love to. Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel and all that it's taught us. We pray that it would have its intended effect, that we would leave, live each day in light of the end, faithful to you in all things, even in exile, and that we would be seeing that you are above all. Help us to go our way, the way that you have for us until the end. In Jesus' name.